The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles if you have one with you, or if you're on your phone, I encourage you to uh, click over to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. For those who were not able to join us this Friday, we left off in Mark with Jesus in the tomb. He had been laid there by Joseph of Arimathea with a large stone that was placed in front of the tomb, sealing it off from anyone who would be a grave robber or any animals who might try to enter. And the disciples are gone. They have all fled. They are all hiding because their leader has died. And Jesus is lifeless, laying there inside of the tomb. And that is how we arrive at our text this morning. So please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Who was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. God, your word is powerful. The Bible declares it to be more powerful than even a two-edged sword that can cut between bone and marrow, that can cut between soul and spirit. Your word divides to the deepest part of who we are. And God, today I pray that you would divide to the deepest part of who we are. God, I pray for those of us who are believers in your name, in your son, that you would use this to give us great courage. Use your word to separate the places of trust and the places of fear in our heart and give us grace and comfort that we might not stand in fear, but we might stand in obedience, knowing that you have done everything for us in your Son. And God, I pray for those who don't know you, that this might serve as a way to open their eyes to the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now Mark presents all of his stories very rapidly, and that is also true with the resurrection. And Mark presents the resurrection through the testimony of three women who went to honor Jesus. Mark is always really sparse here in terms of detail compared to the other gospel writers. But he breaks character here, and he actually names the women who were present. I think this is very significant. Even more interesting is the fact that he has already named them multiple times. If you jump back one page into Mark chapter 15, verse 40, you will see these words. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome, 
So these three women saw Jesus on the cross. They were observing the crucifixion from a distance. We actually learn from John's gospel, there was a time where they came closer and approached nearer to the cross, and John spoke to Jesus specifically concerning care for his earthly mother. But Mark mentions them by name again in verse 47 and says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now you'll notice Salome is not listed here. It's possible this is shorthand writing because he mentions their names again in the very next verse. But more than likely, it means that only the two women saw where he was laid. They were watching Joseph of Arimathea. They recognized where Jesus had been placed. And Salome had already gone on to her home. And they reconnected later on. It's likely that all day Saturday, these women were together. It's likely that they had come from Galilee and they were worshiping the Lord, celebrating the Passover together. But this was unlike any other Passover they had ever experienced before. They were probably taking turns comforting one another, taking turns recognizing the frustration in one another. How could they do this to our Lord? The images of Jesus' body, bloody and bruised, probably filled their dreams. These people were devastated. And as they spent Saturday together, they were surely filled with sorrow. So our text tells us that on Sunday morning, which is the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, these women went out just after sunrise. Not sure who it is, but someone once wrote that sorrow rises early. When you're sorrowful, you wake early in the morning. They rose early and they went to see Jesus. They have no expectation here that Jesus is going to be alive. Their expectation is to go there and mourn and weep and to honor his body. Mark even moves the microphone, as it were, into their conversation, and he allows us to overhear that they're questioning aloud to one another, who is it that's going to move away the stone? We can't do that on our own. The stones that would often be placed in front of wealthy people's graves like this were about 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. These three women had no hope of moving it on their own, so they're carrying with them these spices to his body. And historically, this is a way for them to honor the dead, but it was also a way to preserve the body just a little bit longer so that it wouldn't rapidly decay or decompose so that more people could come and visit the tomb without being overcome by a strong odor. So they're walking along in dip, and their depths of sorrow. And verse 4 tells us, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. They looked and they saw, they came around the corner. It's already moved. We don't have to worry about somebody moving the stone for us. And then Mark adds this little editorial note. It was very large. They obviously couldn't have any hope of doing this on their own. This would, would have quickly indicated to them that somebody had moved it. Somebody had come and done what they were hoping would take place. In their minds, they were probably already working out theories. Who did this? Did the disciples already show up? Did Peter and the others come and, and come and see his body and anoint him? Maybe, maybe the Romans moved it away. Maybe the Romans have something to do with what's going on here. I have four kids. Uh, the youngest one is Mordecai. I'll show you a picture of him up here. Um, He's like a giant mashed potato. Um, my friend Mark Amorelli tells me that of all of our children, he's the one that looks the most like Winston Churchill. And uh, he's absolutely correct, I think, in that. Hopefully he grows out of it. Uh, even though he can only flap around right now, like barely move, can just start to roll over, he's filled with life. You look at him and you just see life abounding 
from him. And that's true of all children. They're just filled with energy. I wake up and my kids are already awake. I'm like, how in the world do you have this much energy already? They're just filled with life and exuberance. And you look at them and you just enjoy seeing the life in them. But in sharp contrast to that, we have seen dead bodies. If you've gone to a funeral, if you've gone into a place where there is an open casket and you look inside, you see a body that has no more life in it. And as you go and you look at that deceased person, they've attempted to make them look alive. They put makeup on them. They've filled their body with chemicals. They've done things so that they won't look as dead as they actually are. And still you look at them and you can just tell in an instant that person has no more life in their body. Growing up, I'd been to many funerals, but none of them hit me so hard as when I first saw my grandfather in the casket. He was a man that I knew to be very strong. He was tough. He was an outdoorsman. He was a builder. He knew how to do anything, and his hands were like leather from a lifelong of labor. And then when I saw him in the casket, that was all gone. There's no strength. There's no power. It was completely jarring to see that his hands now had been folded across a lifeless, unmoving, unbreathing chest. That's what these women are expecting to see. They're expecting to go see a lifeless, helpless body with nothing left. Instead, they see the stone has been rolled away and they're still going in, entering into the darkness of that tomb, expecting to find a body with no life in it. Verse 5 tells us they entered into the tomb. I assume it was very slow and methodical as they're seeking not to touch anything that would defile them and they're seeking to see what is inside. Let their eyes adjust to the mistiness of what's inside of that tomb. And then they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and it says they were alarmed. I mean, I think this is automatically going to happen. My wife freaks out when I quietly walk into a room and she doesn't know I'm there. And then she turns around and sees me. You can be alarmed, but this goes beyond that. Mark simply refers to this messenger as a, quote, young man. But we know from the other gospel accounts, this is actually an angelic visitation. It was a visitor who had come and taken on the appearance of a young man. Now, you may wonder why they're alarmed beyond what we see as normal. They must have expected somebody was there, right? Somebody had to move away the stone. So why is it that they are so shocked and stunned? Matthew tells us a little more about the appearance of this angelic messenger. Rocky spoke about this in the opening of our service today. Matthew 28 verse 3 says, His appearance was like lightning. I have no idea what that means. I can't even begin to picture what that looks like in my mind. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. This was terrifying to the women. So, as angels often do in these encounters, he said to them, the first thing, do not be alarmed. One of the phrases that you and I have to be very careful to use and how we use it and how we follow up after it is the phrase, don't freak out. If I tell uh, my wife, don't freak out, I have to be very sensitive and careful about how I follow that phrase. Kids, it's report card week. You get your report card and you hand it to your parents and you say, don't freak out. Your next words better be, I got all A's or at least something like maybe I got a couple B's. When we say don't freak out, it's very important that what follows it is carefully and methodically and usually needs to be helpfully worded. I remember when I was uh, a missionary in Brazil, I got deported. And uh, when I found out this was going to take place, I, um, I called my mother. I was on this little mountaintop in this little 
uh, this little house that was made out of cinder blocks and had a phone in it. And I called my mother and I said, Mom, don't freak out. I'm getting deported from Brazil. I have three days to leave the country. And then the phone line died. And then I couldn't call her for at least about another hour. She was terrified on the other end. Well, this angelic visitor says, don't freak out. Don't be alarmed. He said, don't be alarmed, but then he immediately followed it up with the best possible news that you could ever give. This is not bad news. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. I know why you're here. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? The angel must have had so much joy in his voice as he was the one that had the opportunity to get the job from heaven, to go be the one to tell these women he's alive. He's not here. He is risen. This word, he is risen, is one word in Greek. And when you pair it with Jesus' words from the cross, it is finished. These two words serve as twin summits, the peaks of the gospel. The most clear and concise presentation of the, uh, the gospel in the entire Bible is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, which says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is why we say the gospel is of first importance. The gospel can't be boiled down any farther than that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the lowest common denominator. The gospel from that point is irreducibly complex. Jesus did exactly what he promised he would do. He laid down his life and then he took it back up again. Death could not hold him. It wasn't even a fair fight. So the angel gave instructions to the women and he said, but go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now some scholars think this means that they didn't ever tell anyone because they were so overcome with fear. Others think that it means that they were so in awe that they just didn't stop to speak to anyone until they actually got to the disciples and then shared with them. But the important question for us to answer right now is, how will we respond to the fact that the tomb is empty? The empty tomb requires a response from us. On Friday, we considered five things that Jesus accomplished by his death. And as a compendium to that sermon, today we are going to move forward by considering five things that result from his resurrection. But before we dig in, I want to give just a couple quick words of instruction here. Firstly, we're going to move really rapidly through many different passages of Scripture. If you would like, feel free, of course, to flip around in your own Bible and to find those passages for your convenience. Uh, They're going to be right here. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you just to jot down the addresses here. Just jot down where we're going to be so that you can go back and consider these things more thoroughly later on. Secondly, there are going to be multiple times in the remainder of the sermon where I'm going to use a conditional term. For example, I will use the word if, and sometimes I'll speak of those who are or those who are not. This is usually going to be used in such a way that I will be distinguishing between those who are saved and those who are not saved. So if you are here and you are trusting in any way in your own works to get to heaven, if you are trusting in your kindness or your perceived goodness compared to other people, or if you are trusting in your church attendance, the fact that you're here, or your generosity, or your giving, if you are trusting in your acts of obedience to the law, or if you are uh, trusting in anything else, 
whatever it might be, if it's not Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. And so when I say if, or when I use these kinds of terms, I pray that the Holy Spirit will help you to understand where you need to line up with those statements, whether you are in the kingdom of God or outside of it. Thirdly, it's well worth noting that this is definitely not an exhaustive list. The resurrection of Jesus Christ results in so many incredible promises for a believer. And as we'll see, Jesus' resurrection is the bedrock foundation of our faith. And there is a myriad of truths that I could add to this list, but we would literally be here until next Easter. So what we'll do this morning is we're just going to lock into these five incredible truths that I've selected for this morning. First, we'll consider that Jesus and his resurrection vindicated his death. To vindicate means to acquit or to prove that somebody has been found guilty, but now has actually been found innocent. He was once thought to be guilty and now has been set free. Vindication speaks to the removal of blame, the removal of suspicion. If Jesus' body had remained in that tomb, it would have indicated that he was actually worthy of death. In 1 Timothy chapter 3.16, we read one of the earliest Christian creeds. It says, Great indeed we confess the mystery of godliness. And then it tells us what that might be. It says, He was manifested in the flesh, which speaks of his perfect birth, his life, and his death. And he was vindicated by the Spirit, which speaks to his resurrection. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. I like the academic way that Gerd Hardis Voss explains this when he says, Christ's resurrection was the de facto declaration of God in regard to his being just. His quickening bears in itself the testimony of his justification. God, through suspending the forces of death operating on him, declared that the ultimate, the supreme consequence of sin had reached its final termination. In other words, Resurrection had annulled the sentence of condemnation. Now, if you didn't catch all that, that's okay. Allow me to explain it another way. In Romans chapter 6, verse 9, it says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Everyone else in the Bible who was raised from the dead ended up back in the grave eventually. Everyone else who experienced receiving life after they had breathed their last breath eventually wound up back in a tomb. Jesus raised Lazarus, but eventually he died. Jesus was raised to life and would never taste death again because, as Romans says, death no longer has dominion. His resurrection to this kind of life proves that he is absolutely innocent before God. That's why Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice what happens here next. A total transformation, a total shift. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God did not exalt a dead Jesus. God viewed Jesus' death as obedience and as sufficient to accomplish the mission for which he was sent. So God highly exalted Jesus, which included raising him from the dead. And this is wonderful news for us, because if Jesus was not vindicated, if he was not raised, then it would be evidence that God was not pleased with the cross. 
It would mean that Jesus was not an acceptable sacrifice for us. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5:17, and if Christ has not, I'm sorry, 15:17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope. So thanks be to God that we have seen the acceptable sacrifice in Jesus and that God accepted it in our place so that Jesus was vindicated. Here's a second precious truth that results from the resurrection. And that is that because Jesus was raised, he will always be with us. As Jesus was ascending into the heavens, he spoke, he spoke to his disciples and he told them this. In Matthew 20, 28, 20, he says, <clears throat> I am with you always. Don't just keep reading. Pause for a second. I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is an incredible promise. Those words echo down through all of church history and they echo into this room right now. He is saying to us, I am with you right now. I am with you always. And he is with us. He is for us. Romans eight thirty four describes Jesus as interceding for us at the father's right hand. When Paul was on trial and he was deserted by all of his friends, all of his fellow Christians had left him alone. He says, but the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. If you are a Christian, the resurrection means for us that we have a king who is engaged with our lives. That we're not following somebody who made some stuff up a long time ago and then died. Buddha's dead. Muhammad is dead. You go down the list, they're all dead. But Jesus is alive. Everything that we do is of particular interest to him. More than a new, a new mother who is coddling her firstborn child, loves that child and adores him. More than that, he adores us. More than a general cares for his soldiers and teaches them battle tactics and cares for them and shows them how to navigate in war. He cares and directs and leads us. He is more than a friend. He is closer than a brother. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our strength. He is our shield because he is alive. And Christ has been raised. This means for us, we are never going to be without him. Thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus resulted in the sending of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus was foretelling his death to the disciples, he said in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. He's speaking about his death. And he says to them, it is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. On the day of Pentecost, when God sent the Holy Spirit, the apostles understood this connection between the resurrection and the arrival of the indwelling of the third person of the Trinity. They see that these two events have something in, in common with one another. In Peter's famous Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, 32 through 33, he proclaimed, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. There is the resurrection. Verse 33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Holy Spirit has come because he has been raised. They are intimately intertwined. We do not have time today to carefully examine all of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. There are so many things that he does with us and for us. But he draws us to salvation. 
The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He sanctifies us. He causes us to bear good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. It means that it is his fruit. Not to mention that he seals our salvation, that he guides us into truth. He comforts our hearts and he gifts us with gifts and skills to serve the church. And all of that would not take place had it not been that Jesus Christ had been raised. So we read about the resurrection of Jesus and we should rejoice in the Trinitarian nature of God's ministry to us. What is happening when the Father raises the Son and sends the Spirit to minister to those who are saved? Here's a fourth result of the resurrection. And this one takes a sharply different tone than the first three that I have noted. And it's this. The resurrection serves as a promise of God's coming wrath. In the modern church, most people shy away from speaking about the wrath of God when they share their faith. When we go out evangelizing, people tend and desire to speak more about the love of God than they do about the wrath of God. In the entire book of Acts, the love of God is not spoken about even one time. And that's the book we go to to learn about evangelism. And as we are reading it, they often speak about the wrath of God. When Paul went to the city of Athens and began preaching the gospel to the intellectual elites, I want you to see the crescendo of his sermon. These are actually, literally, the last recorded words of his message on this mountaintop experience where he is preaching to these people at Mars Hill. Acts 17, 30-31 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. There is a reason that I am telling you to repent. It is because judgment is coming. And notice what he says at the very last words of his sermon. And this he, and of this, he has given assurance to all. How? By raising him from the dead. This resurrection of Jesus serves as a promise of impending judgment. Don't miss this. It is coming. And Paul is proclaiming the gospel to those pagans by lovingly showing them that Jesus' resurrection gives them a promise, assurance that he will indeed judge the world. If you're not saved, this is the only one of the five truths I'm mentioning today that actually speaks to you personally at this stage. If you are not saved, it means that you are under the very wrath of God that Paul is speaking about here. You cannot experience the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I call on you this morning, if you are not saved, repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Call on the name of the Lord and there is a promise that you will be saved. If you want to know more about that, I want to speak to you about that. So please, I encourage you, meet with me, talk with me after the service or to anyone that you've seen up here today. We want you to know and follow Jesus Christ so that you might experience the benefits of the resurrection and not the wrath that is to come. Because if you don't repent, there is a promise that the same Jesus who came to save the world will also judge it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says that we wait for his Son from heaven. We who know Jesus, we're waiting. It says, whom he raised from the dead. Notice the resurrection implications. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is how he is defined for us. If you know him, if you place your faith in him, then you are waiting for him, not in judgment, but for ultimate deliverance from the wrath that is to come. Our fifth and final result of the resurrection that we're going to examine this morning is perhaps the most intimately personal one to each believer here. We are promised that because Jesus was raised, we too will also be raised. Now, there are two ways that this works itself out 
in the believer's life, two ways that it finds itself applied. First, when you become a Christian, the Bible teaches that you now have new life. It's already taken place. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, or another way to say it, the old has died. Behold, the new has come. Or consider Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what happened? He made us alive together with Christ. Don't miss the together part. That he has made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. That word together implies that his resurrection is the cause of our resurrection. This spiritual life that we have can only happen because he was raised first. In Colossians 3, 1, Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, and then he just continues on, that's an incredible way to start a sentence. If then you have been raised, who in the world is he talking about? He is talking about all who have experienced salvation. This is another way to say, if you're a Christian, if you have been saved, if you have been redeemed, if Jesus died for your sins, if then you have been raised with Christ, because if we have trusted in him, we have already experienced the spiritual resurrection that takes place when, uh, for which he died. But there is another, even further aspect to this promise of resurrection. If you've been raised spiritually, you will also be raised physically after you experience death. Now, there are dozens of verses that speak about this truth, but none of them is more explicit or clear or simple as 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, which quite simply says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He raised Jesus. Look at that. What did that look like? He was brought up into a resurrected new body. That's what's happening for us. We have no reason to fear death as believers. For a Christian, death is merely the doorway into heaven. We're assured that the moment we breathe our last, our next breath will be breathing in heavenly air, in a heavenly body, which will never fade away and will never fall and will never fail like our earthly bodies do. Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Our bodies, our physical flesh bodies cannot encounter heaven in that way. What we are walking around in right now is tainted with sin. So he continues down in verse 53, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's not there. We don't encounter it. Yes, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. And yes, we will, unless the Lord returns, we will all experience death at the end of our lives, whether that is the next minute from now or that's a hundred years from now. We are all going to taste that. But for those who are in Christ, we are going to wake from that instantaneously in glorious bodies, resurrected because Jesus was raised. The resurrection means so much more for the believer than we often give it credit for. As Paul wrote, if this didn't happen, then there is no hope and you are still in your sins. You of all people are most to be pitied, but praise the Lord. He has been raised and this resurrection has resulted in many glorious realities for us. 
This reveals that Jesus has been vindicated and that he will always be with us. And it proves that his glorious indwelling of the Spirit is with us, that he sent the Spirit on our behalf. And the resurrection is set as firm evidence that God is going to judge the world. And it gives us full hope that we will never experience judgment if we are in Christ. We have much to celebrate. And because we are believers in Jesus Christ, every single day of our lives is resurrection day. We get to be experiencing the resurrection of Christ every single moment because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God and Father in heaven, I thank you that your word is so clear to us about what it means that you have raised Jesus from the dead. God, I pray that we would never take that for granted. I pray that we would never overlook it. I pray that that would be central to who we are and to what we do and the way that we live. God, I ask that if there is anyone here that is struggling in their faith, struggling in their walk with Christ right now, that is having a difficult time battling sin, having a difficult time honoring Christ in their actions, God, I pray that you would break that, cause them to rejoice in what Christ has done and to to recognize their life is meant to be lived for Jesus, that the life they now live is in him. God, if there is anyone here that doesn't know you in a saving way, I'm sure in a room this size there are, God, I pray that you would please, by your spirit, break their hard hearts and bring them to the truth. And God, I pray for all of us here that because of your word, we might delight in your son. Because of what it says about his resurrection, that we might rejoice in him. I pray for the remainder of the day, although I'm sure everyone has many events and things to go to, that your good good news, your gospel will be central to all of what we do. And may you receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.